So a few weeks ago, Pete Hughes told us we're gonna do this series on the face of God. And I got really excited. He said, yes, you're gonna to get to choose your favorite story of encounter with Jesus in the gospels. And immediately he lost me. I was like in my own head. I left the meeting, I left the Zoom meeting and I was in my own head. I was thinking, hmm, I wonder what my favorite stories of Jesus are. And there were two big contenders, but I thought, no, it's gotta be the woman at the well. I start planning the talk, start thinking about the stories that I could use, all the different bits. And I think, yeah, I've got it. I zone back into the meeting and Pete says, go and write down in the rotor your favorite story of Jesus. So we're not choosing the same ones, but just so everyone knows, I'm preaching the first week and I'm gonna speak on the woman caught in adultery. Boo! So <laughs> I'm feeling a bit sad. I'm feeling a bit um, wounded. And I think, no, I'm not gonna be caught out. I'm gonna go and put my second favorite one in the rotor. So <coughs> washing of the disciples' feet, I pop it in the rotor. And then a few weeks later, well, a week later, I get a call from John Carter. Hey Anna, um, how attached are you to the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet? The answer in my head is very attached, John, very attached. What comes out of my mouth is, of course, John, of course you can do that story. No, you perfectly exemplify the servant leadership of Jesus. You simply must do it. So when we take into account like all the stories of Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection, the story I'm gonna share with you today is probably like in my top 20 moments of Jesus. But if you wanna go and hear my favorite stories of Jesus, washing the disciples' feet and the woman caught in adultery, Pete and John did that a few weeks ago and they did a, um, an average job of it, I would say. But that said, Jesus is my favorite person who's ever breathed and therefore his favorite moments, his top 20 moments are some of the best around. So we're gonna read a story from Luke 19. <clears throat> if you wanna join me, it's verse one. And it's about Zacchaeus, Jesus and Zacchaeus. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. Interesting note there, some commentators say that they're not sure whether the he who is short in stature is Jesus or Zacchaeus. Um, I've got a theory that Jesus was short, but I have to say that for another time. Anyway, so Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said, Lord, look, half of my possessions I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, if, if you've defrauded, you have defrauded. If I've defrauded anyone, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. So the whole point of this series is studying the stories of Jesus, looking into the face of God. Here he is embodied, the visible, the physical image of the unseen God. And what's one of the distinctives of the Christian faith that we don't speak about God as the universe, that we believe that God has a name and his name is Jesus. We don't need to guess what the character of God is like. We see in the narrated life of Jesus, here he is, the enfleshed, the character and the nature of God. And in this story of Zacchaeus, he offends. And the reason I believe it's so offensive is because he's stretching our understanding of love. 
there are two stories going on here. There's the story of Zacchaeus and there's also the story of the crowd. And I want to explore both today. But before that, I want to lay down two bits of context, which just help us understand how offensive this moment is. The first thing is about what it meant to be a tax collector. And the second thing is about what it meant to eat at someone's house in that culture. So it says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which means he was a Jewish man working for the oppressors, for the Roman oppressors. Now the Jewish people were a nation who'd experienced oppression, first of all, all from Egypt, then Babylon and Assyria. So their identity has been formed in a very painful way through oppression. And the presence of Rome in their nation would have been a source of shame, of fear and anxiety and, and anger. So for Zacchaeus to choose to work for Rome, it would have been despicable in the eyes of the people in Jericho. He's chosen himself over his nation, over his family and friends, and he has betrayed them. But more than that, he would have robbed from them. Zacchaeus took taxes from Rome, but he earned his money by upping the debt. He wasn't allowed to take a share of the taxes, but the authorities gave him permission to take more on top. And it was his choice how much he would take. And if the people didn't give him the, uh, the money, well, then he would have the brute force of the Roman Empire to enforce that they actually did. And the mention that Zacchaeus is a, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector and a rich one at that tells us just how despicable he would have been. And in this time, tax collectors and sex workers were considered the most morally corrupt group of people in their society. And every society has a group of people where the majority decide that they are the most morally corrupt. It's like a form of so a social construction of exclusion. And tax collectors and sex workers were in that time what, who it was to those people. But it's, it's those people who Jesus spends time with. As you read the Gospels, it says he spends time, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And in many ways, it's that that got him killed because that was so deeply offensive. And we might hear that those two people groups and we don't get the same guttural reaction. We don't actually think it's that um, significant, partly because we don't have tax collectors these days, but also we have a very different attitude towards sex workers. But there are people who we, the majority, consider morally corrupt. Politically, for us, it might be the white supremacists. Or on the other hand, it might be the terrorists who um, incite hatred and plan uh, attacks for the maximum loss of life. Sexually, it might be the rapist or the paedophile. That feels different, doesn't it? That hits the gut. That feels disorientating and confusing. And that's exactly how the people would have felt when they saw that Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. And perhaps for some of those people standing in the crowd, they would have experienced firsthand and the, the greed of Zacchaeus. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I've experienced firsthand those groups of people you just mentioned, Anna. I've experienced racism. I've experienced abuse. I've, exp I've lost loved ones. And some of them might have had flashbacks to moments where they were um, desperate and Zacchaeus came knocking on their door demanding money when they didn't have enough food to feed their families. This isn't a man who's been socially excluded because he's a little bit awkward and they don't know how to talk to him. He's been rejected because he experienced so he caused so much pain and suffering to that community. And the anger towards him in that crowd would have felt like bile in their mouths. And yet Jesus walks past that crowd and says to Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house. And this is where it gets even more offensive. 
To eat at someone's house was a sign of intimacy and friendship. The table was this cultural boundary, and a good Jewish person wouldn't share their table with a sinner because the home was a sacred place. In exile, the Jewish people didn't have a temple to worship in, so it, they, they started using the table, the home, as a sacred space where they would commune with God and they would commune with one another. So there was this reverence about the table and that it was a place that you kept pure. So do you see why it's such an explosive story and why it made it into my top 20? It sets the scene, but what about the two different perspectives? Firstly, let's look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus enters the story with very low expectations. All he wants to do is just see Jesus. Perhaps he's heard through colleagues that Jesus doesn't treat tax collectors like everyone else treats them. Um, there's something that's piqued his interest, his curiosity about this man, Jesus. And the best he expects of Jesus coming to town is just a glimpse. That's all he's thinking. That's all I'm going to get is a glimpse of Jesus. He definitely doesn't expect that Jesus is going to look at him in the eye. And he certainly doesn't expect that Jesus is going to talk to him and then cross the huge chasm of coming into his house. And I think sometimes we can have very low expectations of Jesus. Happy almost like to be on the periphery, just observe is a bit like Zacchaeus or coming to church occasionally, and, or even regularly, but not actually expecting Jesus to do that much, or even want to have that much of a relationship with us. But there's lots of different reasons for that. First of all, we might actually not know Jesus ourselves. We might have just, like Zacchaeus, just heard about him, and heard, but not actually not encountered him for ourselves. It might be shame that we've convinced ourselves, even if we did have any interest in Jesus, he's certainly not gonna be interested in us. It might be, thirdly, that we have a feeling that we have to get our house in order, we have to go and sort our home out, our lives out, before we can invite Jesus into a deeper friendship. Or fourthly, we might be scared that actually if we invite Jesus into our lives, if we have a deep friendship with him, he actually might disrupt and change things. Whatever a reason or rationale might be, when we see this story, we see the face of God willing to sit and eat with people, have relationships with people who haven't got their lives together, who aren't yet worthy. The other dimensions of this of a meal in this culture is that it was an opportunity for reconciliation, for those who've been estranged from each other to come back into relationship. And the reason that people fear Jesus coming to Zacchaeus' house is that in some way he's like condoning the actions of Zacchaeus, rewarding bad behaviour and acting like it doesn't actually matter that much. But that isn't the case, that is not what is going on here. If it was then when Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half my money to the poor or I'm going to pay back four times what I've cheated people out of, Jesus would be like, oh that's not necessary mate, you don't need to do that. But that isn't what happens. The act of Jesus going to eat with Zacchaeus is his way of presenting to Zacchaeus an opportunity to be restored. First of all, to be restored to God, to himself, and then to his community. And the Bible talks about how it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that changes us. And that is exactly what we see going on in this story. First of all, he's restored to God. It's from this relationship that all the healing comes, the subsequent healing comes. He sits there eating and drinking and chatting with Jesus. Can you just imagine being a fly on the wall of that conversation? But Luke doesn't think it's actually important for us to know what is said at that meal. The, the significant point is they're actually talking. And when I, I remember when I first started getting intrigued by Jesus, a bit like Zacchaeus, um, 
I just started talking to him and I wasn't even sure whether he actually existed but what I encountered when I started that conversation when I just opened the door to relationship I realized that like Zacchaeus is realizing that he's actually interested in a relationship with us too and that still gets me what an absurd offer of relationship and it's how we respond to that relationship the invitation is there Zacchaeus could have said no don't come to my house I don't want friendship with you but that, that is on us, the invitation that Jesus says that he wants to come, even if we haven't sorted our homes out. Secondly, he's reconciled to himself. The, the meaning of the name Zacchaeus means innocence or purity. And this beautiful moment where in the, in the midst of this relationship with Jesus, he comes to himself and it's almost like he reawakens or something's restored or resurrected in him that he actually who becomes who he was always meant to be. He comes back to himself in the process of this encounter. And don't we need that? Don't we need that moment of where we come into alignment with actually who we are created to be? And thirdly, he gets restored to his community. All of this overflows into a wave of generosity as he says, I'm going to give half my money to the poor. I'm going to take responsibility for the choices I've made in the past and I'm going to give back what, was, what I've stolen. And for many people, it's that third one that is actually really terrifying, taking responsibility for our choices. Perhaps friendship with Jesus would require that we think we change something. And I'm not going to lie to you, my experience with Jesus is that things have changed in me. Things that I used to hold on to, a bit like Zacchaeus is holding on to his greed and his, his money at the beginning of the story. But it suddenly seems like it's like an easy thing to give away in the process at the end of the story. And there's definitely things I used to care about, which now I don't really care about in them, at them anymore. But what I notice Jesus has done with me and he does it with Zacchaeus is he doesn't coerce Zacchaeus into anything. He gives him a remarkable amount of freedom to choose him or not to choose him. And therein lies the simple choice. It's simple but complex that are we going to choose Jesus each and every single day? Are we going to choose to be with him? To have practices where we talk to him, where we pray, where we get to know him as we read the Gospels? Are we going to explore those things in our lives? Are we going to and become more like him as we be learn what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. And are we going to start doing some of the things that he did um, in the same way Zacchaeus becomes generous like Jesus? So that's the story of Zacchaeus. What about the crowd? Well, let's just re-engage with how offensive this is for them. Imagine being one of the people standing in the crowd. You've tried really hard to be a good Jewish man or woman. You've not swindled anyone in your community. In fact, you've done the opposite, tried to look out for people. And you've been a victim of this guy. And suddenly Jesus walks straight past you and goes to his house. Jesus' choice to go to, to visit Zacchaeus exposes a wound in the crowd. They start grumbling. It provokes a reaction from them. Before Jesus did that, they probably just got used to having this wound, harboring this anger and this resentment towards Zacchaeus, so much so that it's just become normal life to them. But then in a moment it gets exposed. And there's lots of insecurity and wounds that we carry that after a while it just can become normal part of our lives. They become part of us, then circumstances or people expose them. And we see them flare up like this crowd flares up. Jesus' intention in this moment was to bring salvation to a man who's been hurting himself and others. But the crowd perceive his action as something unjust and it leaves a, leaves a, a wave of people feeling rejected. It unearths their anger. 
And about um, six or seven years ago, my my old vicar, um, sorry, I should say my previous vicar, John Soper, because he wouldn't like to be called old, um, in Exeter, um, did a, a talk about being unoffendable. I've tried to find it online and, and re-listen to it, but honestly, I will never forget it. He spoke about growing into being people who it is impossible to offend. And he said that whenever we get offended, it reveals a wound in us that needs healing. And rarely can I say a chalk has changed my life, which is incredibly depressing as I deliver this one. Um, but that one really did, because we've all got stuff in our lives that hurts. When life deals us a blow, then the actions and intentions of people, whether um, good or bad, impacts on us and it reveals a wound or causes a wound in us, which feels raw and fresh. And people's intentions might have been good, they might have been bad, but we perceive their actions as another blow to us. And the crowd received the action of Jesus, this very good action of Jesus, as a personal slight on them. How often can we think about that that's happened to us? And the reason John's talk was so profound for me is because um, I have a tendency to enjoy the victim mentality. Why do I enjoy it? It's because it gets me attention and that's one of the things that I love. I love attention. And But what I've tried to do since hearing that talk is pay attention to the times I get offended. When I feel myself flare up or want to flare up, rather than engaging too quickly with the person that's offended me, I ask myself the question, why does this hurt me so much? What is this revealing? What, is, what wound is this revealing in me that actually needs healing? It makes the subsequent engagement with the person that's offended you a lot easier, I can promise you, because you're then able to own your own stuff in the conversation. And as a culture, we are very easily offended. It's a lot talked about, it's been very documented. And at the moment, insecurities are incredibly heightened. I wonder why, I wonder what might possibly be going on that's making us feel insecure. And I've been hearing a lot of people naming wounds that have always been there, but actually they suddenly feel exposed. And comparison is not a good method at the moment. It isn't a friend to the crowd. When um, Zacchaeus, um, when, they, when they're standing there, they're saying, hey, look what Zacchaeus has done and look what I've done. I deserve, I deserve you to come to my house, Jesus. And comparison is manifesting itself in lots of ways. Um, and I could give a thousand and one examples. I could talk about social media, but I just want to name one which I've heard a lot about. And because there's two big things that are going on at the moment, people are feeling isolated and lonely and people are feeling overwhelmed. Now, um, it's manifesting in one of the ways it's manifesting is, is people who are single saying, hey, I'm lonely, if only I had dot, 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 if only people would do dot, 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 if only I was married, gosh, it would just be so much easier. And what we're forgetting in that moment is how much strain this lockdown is putting on marriages. We saw in Wuhan when the lockdown was lifted, the divorce, um, the applications for divorce skyrocketed. And actually what we need to be doing is praying for our married friends. On the other hand, you have people saying, I'm overwhelmed by kids. I'm, my partner is driving me mad. It'd be so much easier if I was single and just doing this on my own. Forgetting how exhausting it is to be single and how much time it takes to maintain the healthy levels of relational connection, which you experience with one person with lots and lots of people. Comparison is not helpful right now because it means that we lose sight of our blessings and we over-realise other people's. And there's a whole host of things I could go into, but what I wanna to say to you, if you don't fit into that category, what is that thing that is hurting right now? It's probably a wound that you've been walking around with for quite some time. 
um, and it's probably become your normal. Well, we could spend our energy blaming other people or blaming the circumstances, or we could decide that the time is up, that it's time to get that wound healed. Now, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a counsellor, um, and it might be that there's some things that are coming up that actually you need to unpick and unpack with professionals. And we're big advocates for that at KXC. There's been stuff that's come up in me recently, I thought I probably need to talk to a professional about that, and there is no shame in that. I don't claim to be an expert in mental health, but when I got ordained, I made a vow that I would preach the gospel in good times and in bad. And I have to speak about the good news of Jesus, that in Jesus Christ we see the face of God, that his life demonstrates that without a shadow of a doubt you are loved because he chose to suffer and die for you. And that love is a healing balm to any wound. I don't care what, where that wound has come from. That love, that pure, perfect love is a healing balm to that wound. And he absorbed all the darkness that the world could throw at him. But in his resurrection, he demonstrated that he could reverse the effects of sin and death. And I believe that there's many wounds that we're carrying, which are the effects of our sin or other people's. And, um, and I believe that by his spirit, he wants to come and heal them. He wants to come and reverse the effects of that wound. So they don't have power over us anymore. So they don't control us. Sometimes healing comes to us in a moment and we're going to pray in a moment that the spirit would come and fill us. But sometimes it's actually a process of rehabilitation over time. But these wounds that flare up, they're not our friend. They're not, they don't belong to us. They're not part of us. And they definitely don't help us make and keep friends. And the crowd was so caught up in their pain and that moment that they missed what Jesus was doing. Jesus was bringing extraordinary change and salvation to a man and to their community because it overflowed onto everyone else. But they missed celebrating the good news because they were too caught up and blinded by their own pain. And many of us are missing out on what Jesus is doing because we're too caught up and blinded by our own pain. And there's so many keys that I could talk about at the moment, but just one is um, forgiveness, the importance of forgiveness in this. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that um, we can forget what happened to us. It doesn't mean what happened to us was okay. And um, Jesus never once condoned sin. You don't see him ever do it with Zacchaeus. You don't see it with the woman caught in adultery. Um, he doesn't condone, condone sin. But there's something about forgiveness that releases us. It releases us from that person. That person doesn't have control over us anymore. So there's two perspectives on this story. Zacchaeus and the crowd. Who do you identify with? And I believe the love of Jesus offends us in this story because his love is more expansive than ours. And that when we reach our limits of our love, that he wants to take us and stretch us a little bit more and take us into his love to let us love him and to let us feel like, well, we feel like as Zacchaeus, the bits of us that feel unlovable, to let us love him, him love us, and to let him heal our wounds where, so that we can be freed up to love other people's, to love the bits of other people that in like very normal terms would seem unlovable. He wants to expand our love where we feel like it's reached our limits.